Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Tom Schachtman, author of The Founding Fortunes. Tom Schachtman is the author of the book, The Founding Fortunes, How the Wealthy Paid For and Profited from America's Revolution. Tom, how, why did you decide to focus on the wealthy? Well, this book uh, sort of grew organically out of the last two that I've done, which are about the revolution. One being called How the French Saved America. That the French contributed an enormous amount of money uh, to the American Revolution, which led me to really investigate who paid for the revolution and to find out that it was primarily uh, the wealthy. We didn't have real taxation in the sense that we know it today at that time. And uh, there was taxation on the state level, but uh, not, no federal taxation. And so some of the wealthy actually uh, paid in quite a bit and bought supplies and bought lots of other things. So it, it's a very complex story and doesn't play out simply during the revolution itself, but through the next quarter century as, as the first governments were set up. So as you did your research, was there anybody who you didn't know about who you were like, wow, this is a really interesting person? Well, lots of them, but I think the most important being uh, Robert Morris, uh, who was not only the financier of the revolution, and especially important actually after it, uh, in the interregnum period between 1780 and 1789, when things were going awry, but also uh, during the revolution itself. And then after it, uh, I think one of the more unknown people is Albert Gallatin, who was the Secretary of the Treasury uh, under Jefferson and Madison, was so much enthused with Hamilton that we don't think anybody else was ever a great Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, so those are two, but there are many, many others. There's a guy by the name of Elias Haskett Derby, who was the king of the privateers. We don't really learn about these kinds of things in school, but uh, privateers helped the revolution quite a bit. And after it, people who were privateers became quite wealthy. They became the new wealthy in the country, replacing some of the older uh, figures and families. So let's go to the 1760s as the revolutionary crisis is breaking out. Uh, how many wealthy people were there in, in the colonies at that time? How much wealth was there in the colonies? Well, we know about the 1% today and also about, let's say, the 100th one, of 1%. And it was somewhere in that area. But the problem in the colonial times was there was only really one way for Americans to become wealthy. And that was through a direct connection to Great Britain, either through having been given a land grant of, of a large kind or through direct commerce. And that commerce was tremendously restricted. And while it made some very wealthy people, what it also basically did was keep down almost everybody else. Uh, they were sort of prevented by the system itself from ever becoming wealthy. One of the hidden things that we don't really understand about the American Revolution was that it freed Americans to actually become eventually wealthy if they could. Before that time, it had to do with 
who your parents were and who their connections were. It was the only real path to wealth. We think of ourselves as, as, a, as a land of entrepreneurs, but that was not possible before the Revolutionary War. Now, talk a little bit about um, the system that you were mentioning, how it kept down some people. Uh, what, what did it involve? Well, it, 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 the system which uh, uh, was later called uh, the mercantile system in 1776 by Adam Smith was in force long before that. And among the most astonishing things that uh, when I talk to people about this that they don't really get, it's hard for me to get, was were no banks, zero. If you wanted to borrow money, you had to go to a wealthy person. But there were also almost no corporations because the British, in, in addition to saying you couldn't have a bank, basically were saying you couldn't get six people together and invest together and make a corporation. You had five, you could do it. If you had six, you needed a special license from Parliament, which was almost never granted. So there were no vehicles by which people could make money. Banks make money. You're allowed to trade in the value of your house for cash to expand your business. None of that could be done at this time. And there were also restrictions on what you could make, what you could consume, where you had to buy it from, all sorts of tremendous amount of, of a whole web of things that really kept people down. A few people were able to make money through it. Men like John Hancock, who inherited from his uncle a tremendous business uh, opportunity, probably the wealthiest man in Boston at that point. But there were very few of those. Now, you mentioned the term liquid capital and how important it was both in Britain and, and the American colonies. But uh, how much access did the Americans have to liquid capital? Well, very little. Uh, first of all, most of the colonies were going on a barter system. You know, I'll give you a pair of shoes, you give me some cider or, or things like that. Um, so they're outside the monetized economy. The only ones who are in it are basically people in the bigger cities uh, who are able to trade with Great Britain. So it's, it's very difficult when you have that to start your own blacksmithing shop or to start your own corner grocery. Although those things were very difficult and uh, they were almost impossible before the revolution. Now you mentioned in the book, you talk about land banks and you talk about how in Pennsylvania had, had a positive experience with land banks, but eventually uh, the British would outlaw those as well. Oh, what is a land bank? Land, land, bank, land banks were a lovely idea, and in some places they were able to do quite a bit. In Pennsylvania, for example, uh, the idea of a land bank was, was on in the early days, and it basically allowed uh, Pennsylvania to get by without uh, adversely taxing a lot of people. But land banks were loaning money in very small amounts and for short periods of time. You could have 100 pounds, let's say, until the produce of your farm came in, in which case you would sell it and you'd be able to pay back what you owed. Um, but these are, these are short-term loans and they're small loans. And they work fine, but they, they didn't allow the kind of entrepreneurial expansion that we think of as central to building up the, the big American state. Now, the period that you write about was characterized uh, early on by uh, the, the British government taking certain actions and the American colonists resisting those actions. Uh, the first big test was the, the Stamp Act. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you're going to have a rallying point saying we can't make a corporation. I mean, that, that doesn't, doesn't do it for a lot of people. Taxation without representation is something you can understand. Actually, taxation without representation 
was something that could have easily been solved. All you have to do is say, sure, send us a few representatives, we'll outvote them anyway, and then you won't have that excuse to say to us. But taxation without representation is sort of like just the tip of a very large uh, financial iceberg that, that uh, the Americans had to navigate. Um, it, was, it was a good reason, it was a legal reason, but it was not the basis of what was happening. Well, the basis of what was happening was not simply not being allowed to participate, but being kept down in the way that mother countries always keep colonies down. Um, there never was in the history of the world a, a regular program for colonies to evolve into their own independent nation. The United States had to make that mold for other countries to follow. And it, it, it entailed a complete break. And we have to also recognize that when political independence was achieved in 1783, financial independence was not yet achieved. It took another quarter century and more for that to happen. Now, one of the figures, of course, that looms large is John Hancock. He was one of the, the wealthier figures involved in the revolution and the, the, the crisis. When he became involved in the Stamp Act crisis, was, was that unusual for a merchant of his status to, to be involved in that? Well, Hancock was very important because he was a rich man taking up what was essentially a poor man's cause. We may have forgotten about this today, but the revolution actually began in urban American cities with the poor, with people resenting the fact that they had very little control over their lives, especially the financial lives. And for a man named Hancock, who was a second generation wealthy person, probably the wealthiest in the city, to throw in his lot with Sam Adams and some of the other firebrands was a very important, he was called a traitor to his cause by the other Tories in Boston. And by the way, we know there were an awful lot of Tories among his fellow merchants, because when George Washington caused the city to evacuate, it's, it's British occupiers, um, about two-thirds of the Tories in town, the merchant Tories, left on the ships with the British. So th this was, if you are again looking at who is wealthy in America, there were a large proportion of Tories in that early wealth. So that the people who actually backed the revolution were going against their class as well, these wealthy people. And that, that's important for us to know and for under, to understand, and not to simply uh, sweep it aside as saying, oh, well, that's part of the course. Um, it, it wasn't simply that Washington was a superb commander. It was that he was serving without pay. It was that he outfitted a thousand men to bring with him into battle. And that many of the other wealthy people needed to do something, some similar thing on that side. And if, Actually, if you wanted to get in good with Washington, you had to show that sort of self-sacrifice, whether it meant taking a bullet for the team or whether it meant, as with Robert Morris, sending him $50,000 to distribute to the troops after the wonderful crossing of the Delaware. That certainly gets you on, in on the right side with Washington. Because he says, I'm, I'm sacrificing. What about you? What have you done for, for the country lately? Now, in the book, you talk about that as economic patriotism. Uh, was that an, an ethic among the wealthy, or was it just a few individuals who felt that way? Well, I'd like to say most of the wealthy hid or went off and were Tories 
which is stayed by themselves. It was much more possible to have a life by yourself in this era uh, than, than, it, than it is today. We have a difficulty hiding now. We're, we're very public. Um, but, but at that time, wealthy, wealthy Tories especially could do nothing. And then there were also people who were in sympathy with the revolution, but they didn't want to volunteer. They wouldn't want to come for it. They were afraid for their own family. So they put their money under their mattress, so to speak, and didn't do anything and let the war go by them. The war, by the way, was mostly done on the coastal areas. Anything inland, especially inland, of a little range of mountains or something like that, was almost entirely screened from the war. Now, in the the crisis period before the revolution actually broke out, uh, the the colonists chose non-importation as a tactic to use to try to get their way. Uh, why did they select that as an option? Well, why not? I mean, it, it, they needed people who were experienced, and there were very few of those. And they also needed people who could pay their own way. Uh, in Europe, uh, even in England, um, the, the wealthy formed the, the officer corps. They were often the only ones who could afford to be away from the farm for the amount of time it took to have, have an entire campaign. So you got people like Philip Schuyler who had a lot of money and, and Washington who had a lot of money. There were many others who initially did not have money uh, like Nathaniel Green, uh, you know, he didn't have very much money. And Knox didn't have a lot of money. These were much more middle-class guys, but they got into the habit of hobnobbing with people who had a lot of money in camp and so on. And then afterwards, they tried very hard to become super millionaires because that was the company they liked and got them the things that they, that they wanted to have. So uh, there had always been this sort of I want better for myself in America. Uh, that, that had not been the same in, in that era with other countries. It wasn't the same in France. It wasn't the same in Great Britain. There was a sense there that the ordinary person, even the middle class person, was never going to rise to the heights of great wealth and great power. And that was reserved for somebody else. But America made that possible for people. When they had the first Continental Congress in 1774, 98% of the people there were wealthy and had inherited wealth. By the time we get to the Constitutional Convention in 1789, which is after all, only 15 years later, from 40% of the people in that room, who are, by the way, still the 1%, but 40% of them had new money. They had made it themselves. They were self-made men. In the first Continental Congress, there was virtually nobody who was a self-made man. In the second one, there was one, his name was Benjamin Franklin. So, I mean, we, we didn't have that as a tradition. That had to be created as a possibility by our country. Now, uh, once they implemented the non-importation uh, policies, uh, you say, in, you ask in the book, uh, how did the rich sell a self-sacrifice to the poor? How did they do it? Well, you just have to do it. I mean, you can't say, uh, we're going to demand certain things of you, but we're not going to demand it of ourselves. At that time, that would have resulted in bringing the mob to your door. Uh, so it, it has to be done by example. And, and it doesn't always have to be uh, publicized. I mean, the fact that, that uh, Hancock would buy, you know, outfits for 500 soldiers, it was, it was a matter of something of some 
personal obligation. He didn't then go to the newspaper and have a story written about that. He went about some other things when there were problems, but not, not that. Uh, Henry Lawrence, who was one of the wealthiest people in, in South Carolina, uh, hatched a wonderful plan in the middle of a terrible winter that he wanted everybody wealthy, and he knew a lot of them, to come up with a, a fairly modest amount of money and for them all to buy bonds. And these bonds would set the example for everybody else in the country to buy, and people would buy in, and they'd be able to fund the revolution. Now, this went exactly nowhere because no one other than he seemed to be willing to do this at the time. And by the way, these are conservative people, including Lawrence, including Washington, including Hancock. They're not liberal. They don't want to distribute the income in, in this country you know, equally to everybody. Nobody is starting that out. There's no even proto-communism at this time. Everybody here is a capitalist. We should remember that too. Now you mentioned uh, that at the first Continental Congress, uh, people like Patrick Henry and Sam Adams and Christopher Gadsden were the most radical delegates. What, what was it that made them radical? Uh, they were radical because those were their, their beliefs, and uh, but the thing about them was they were also poor. Uh, Sam Adams, the Sons of Liberty that sponsored Sam Adams, uh, went and made a special suit of clothes for him to go to the convention with gold knee buckles because they knew that the other kinds of people who were in that convention, who were all going to be the wealthy heirs to fortune, uh, wouldn't pay his ideas any attention unless he looked more like him. And Patrick Henry suffered the same thing. They, they thought he looked like a, an out-of-work rural cleric. Um, and, and both of these guys got marginalized at the convention. There was not that much to do at that time, other than make make a note of grievance to the to the king. But but even so, when it got the next year in a second convention, uh, when they had to raise money, send the army, and start to manage a war, Hamilton. I'm sorry, not Hamilton. Uh, Patrick Henry and Sam Adams were marginalized. The, uh, the other great radical, who was from South Carolina, had a lot of business expertise, and he was put to work. And so that's the way things happened. And, and, and so we have to also recognize that as the war began, you needed managers, and managers in Congress meant basically people who were engaged in everyday commerce. And that was Robert Mars and a few friends of his. Uh, and they began to run things. Uh, remember also now that there are no career politicians at this time. The closest to him, anyone, was Sam Adams, who had been in politics for years. But almost everybody else has another job. And to learn how to manage a war, you must already be a manager of some sorts. So this, this was a discreet use for uh, people who were in commerce at this time. And also, lots of them were on the front line as people, as supply managers. And they were putting out their own credit and the credit of their family and the credit of their friends in the hopes of eventually getting paid back by the new United States of America. Many of them had to wait for years. Many of them never got paid back. So they were contributory and they were patriotic in ways that um, we simply don't acknowledge anymore. There's more patriotism than you can find on a battlefield. It, it has to do with a lot of other things in a war as well.
during the Revolutionary Crisis period, people like Tom Paine and, uh, and John Dickinson were known for uh, some of their writings and writing pamphlets. Uh, what was the public debate like uh, through printed materials? Well, these men were writing out of, uh, out of conviction. They weren't writing to get rich. Uh, they weren't writing to, to uh, take an arbitrary position or anything. Um, they, they were feeling quite oppressed. Um, and in fact, they were actually far freer than their contemporaries in Great Britain. But that is never the criterion of when you feel oppressed. You are, if you feel it, you are. And they were saying basically, we need to be free to have our commerce and Great Britain will benefit from it in every way, anyhow. But you, you keep constraining us for the purpose of constraining us. That's just silly. We need to be able to send our chip wherever we want to. We need to be able to create the next generation of entrepreneurs and we need to be able to pay you our taxes. They had been paying the taxes so well that Parliament simply raised them. It was, it was almost a, a vicious circle here. You know, we'll pay you what we owe you and maybe we'll pay you it even, off even faster. And then Parliament said, oh good, now maybe we'll tax you some more. And that had happened once too often. Now, during the revolution, you write about how Benjamin Franklin had a secret correspondence committee and Robert Morris also had a secret committee. What was the purpose of those committees? Well, uh, they became friends and as, as the country began, and uh, they had not been friends before. But they were both very, very practical guys. And Franklin takes the, uh, let's always say, the Secretary of State position if he is going to go to the friends that he made in Europe and in England to try and get things coming to America from there. Robert Morris, who also had depots and things all over the world, was going to try and make what I would call a mega deal. They want to send America's produce over to Europe and in return, get the arms and ammunition we made. As I said, I think I said earlier, we had no factory. We couldn't make shoes, we couldn't make rifles, we couldn't make blankets, all of these things. We couldn't make spades to, to go in the ground and dig holes. All of this had to come from Europe. So between them, Franklin and Mars uh, set up systems where they would have agents in the Caribbean and in Paris and in other places uh, to, to make these mega trades. And the biggest one, of course, was with France. And it was done in a very, very interesting way. We were going to send our tobacco and our rice and our indigo, with the three major products at that time, to France directly. Before this, we had to send them to Great Britain, who then take some money and triple the price and then sell them to France. Now France could get things at one third the price. And we would deliver those products in Martinique and in the Caribbean. And in exchange, France would send over arms and ammunition sometimes outmoded arms and ammunition, so that they could get rid of them and they could commission new ones. And it was a tremendous trade that was being made. And Morris and Franklin were on top of this, were the ones who were doing it, mostly without accountability. And there was no president for them to report to. So they were, in essence, co-president of the country at a time when we had no such officers. 
What other methods did the Continental Congress use to raise money during the war? Well, they had, uh, the Continental Congress was, would give to the states uh, things that they had to do. And it was based on the amount of population. And that, of course, was also a little dicey because they didn't know whether or not we were going to count slaves as people. And this is how we came up with that awful 60% figure of how you did things. But each state would have an assessment as to what they had to send in terms of, of soldiers and in terms of, of uh, things to support those soldiers. And if that state could not do it, Congress would then print money and pay for what it needed. But the money had no backing to it. The only possible backing was in the future when states would get their own revenue from their own taxes. States were allowed to tax. The federal government at that time was not. So to get things, the federal government had to obligate the states to do certain things. This was a very difficult system to administer, as you can imagine, and it, it made for tremendous difficulty. Some states did better at it than others. Now, earlier you mentioned privateering. Uh, how was privateering used as a source of funds? Privateering uh, was a concept that's sort of one step above larceny. I mean, piracy is one thing. Privateering, uh, you have a partner. You, the privateer, are in partner with your federal government. So you get a license, you go out there, you do what pirates do, and you bring in your ship, you have to sell it in an accredited place and everything that's in it. And then after you get finished, the government takes a third or even a half of, of what's been produced. But you have a, a license, you're not subject to the same sort of uh, capture that, that you might otherwise be. And for the United States in its infancy, which had very few supplies, which was dependent on outside sources for things such as gunpowder and even for other basic necessities such as sugar. Uh, this was an absolutely necessary thing. So the pri privateers helped in two ways. One is the cargoes that they sold were worth money and that put money in the government coffers. But also the cargoes that they managed to seize were useful to Americans in, in many ways. You know, they filled the need for sugar, they filled the need let's say, for spades or shovels and things like that, that we couldn't get in any other way. And the, the whole um, bevy of privateer captains that came to the fore in, in the Revolutionary War, as you get into the 19th century, 1800, 1810, 20, 30, these are the richest people in the country when they die. And many of these privateer captains uh, used the money they had to start other businesses, for example, the whole low manufacturing thing that we know of in early 19th century, uh, that, that has a lot of privateer money in it. Uh, one, of, one of the key figures in privateering was uh, Elias Derby. Who was he? Well, Derby had been an ordinary sea captain. He was the son of a sea captain. And his, uh, he and his brothers had a few uh, ships. Um, most of the ships were taken by the British um, during uh, the time when, when Boston was occupied. And uh, Derby, who was a fairly conservative guy, a, a, a don't-make-waves guy, got really incensed by this because the British had promised to protect his ships, and then at the last moment, they either took them or burned them or something like that. And he, he said, okay, 
I'm going to turn the remainder of my ship into privateers. Now, what that means is putting a few cannon on board and sending them out to sea. And as soon as he did this, he tripled and quadrupled his money. And he was also very interesting uh, among privateers because he wanted to cut the crews in on everything that they got. Now, it was fairly standard for privateer owners to cut in the captains and the, and the officers, but Derby decided that a happy crew member is a better crew member. And in fact, he turned out to be 100% right about that because his ship were able to turn around and get back out into the Atlantic more time per year than others were. And he had happy families at home because he also owned a warehouse with all sorts of goods. And he'd give somebody their pay in advance as a sort of down payment on goods in his warehouse. And then that person's family could come and get what they needed at any time. So um, this early profit sharing was really quite startling. Now, uh, after independence, uh, many of the states wrote constitutions. Uh, the Pennsylvania Constitution was considered to be more radical than the others. Uh, why? Well, the first one was Pennsylvania's, which, by the way, was, was made at the same time as the Declaration of Independence, uh, just, just a few weeks later. And it was incredibly radical because they, the makers of the Pennsylvania Constitution did not want wealthy people involved and they didn't want lawyers involved. So what they did was they had three militia members who made the Constitution. And it was, from our point of view, the way they wanted to keep down wealth was to keep up democracy. More democracy meant less wealth to them. They weren't quite sure how that was going to work, but they sure did know they wanted more democracy. So what you had was a unicameral legislature, that's one chamber, not two, a very weak governor, and a very weak judiciary. And moreover, the people in the assembly, the general assembly, had to be elected once every year, it could only be elected for seven years, one after the other. And anything that was passed in the assembly had to wait for an entire year, to be published and be discussed all over the place before it became law. And this sounded wonderful, but in fact, it was a mess because they would pass laws that would be pro-debtor laws. And the people who wanted to collect their money couldn't collect their money. And they would pass things that seemed great at the time, but a year later were, were kind of silly. So Pennsylvania was actually very poorly governed during the revolutionary years. And this became an element in what not to do with the United States Constitution. Another element was what happened down the road from a year uh, called Shays Rebellion in 1786, 1787. It was another stupid thing done by a state, in this case, Massachusetts. Massachusetts decided that it would have to pay off its debt to the federal government in five years. Now, nobody told them they had to do it in five years. If they decided on 10 years or 15 years, it, would, it wouldn't have made any difference. But to pay it off in five years meant that almost every cent that came in to the state government was going out again and paying the interest on these bonds. And that in turn made it imperative for the governor and Bowdoin to go and send people to, to take farmers who were in arrears and put them in prison. 
you can't pay your debts when you're in prison. So you had a whole class of people who had fought during the war to come home, find that their farms are in arrears, and when they try and go down to the courthouse and do something about it, they're clapped in iron, and they're behind bars, and now they can't do anything about it. So this eventually produced a rebellion. And while the rebellion was put down, and it needed to be put down, the basic lesson underneath that was that you cannot let states do such stupid things. So the, the Constitution was made in part to do what uh, Washington had asked of Madison, which is correct the ills that have been going on before this. And that's why states have limited authority in the Constitution. And there's a taxation authority built into the federal government fiat, which was never there before. Uh, this, this was a necessary balance. And also other things that are in the Constitution that we now understand had as a basis the things that were done wrong. The bicameral legislature, the House and the Senate, is there by design to prevent the sort of runaway stuff that the Pennsylvania legislature and other unicameral legislatures have done. Uh, the balance of power, which we think, sort of think is an attribute of the government, is actually a central aspect of it. The idea that the president and the courts and the two chambers of Congress are all sort of in equal opposition to one another and are checks and balances to one another is a really central matter. That's the basis on which the American government is supposed to exist. So since the Pennsylvania Constitution was an anti-wealth constitution, how did people like Robert Morris react? Well, Robert Morris was in the thick of making the Constitution. He liked it. Behind the scene, you don't see much of him in the couple of people who took notes. Uh, he doesn't speak that much. But when uh, nobody's taking notes in the committee meetings and things like that, he's working hard for it. And this is, this is after all, as I said, a very conservative fellow. Uh, somebody who likes big business, uh, who, who likes to do things, who's extravagant in his personal behavior. Um, but he understands what's necessary. And that is an, one underlying thing that underlies everything in the American government uh, at this time, which is that these rich people who are making this constitution understood their obligation to the poor to give them opportunities of the kind that had never been afforded to the poor in the history of the world, that weren't the same in Great Britain, that weren't the same in France, that the economic rules that they were putting in were not simply for the benefit of those who already had money, that they were for the benefit of people who wanted someday to have more. And they had to provide this equality of opportunity for them to do that through a basis in law. Now, during the American Revolution, uh, the Bank of North America was established. Uh, what was that intended to do? That was intended to make rich people even richer. Uh, that, that was the first bank, it was a private bank, and it grew out of a small endeavor uh, in 1780 that, that went to fund the American army. There was a little bit of money left over from that, and there was money coming in from France, and about 100 people, mostly in Philadelphia, decided that they would finally be able to charter a bank, which is one of the things they'd not been able to do before that. So they chartered the bank, and it uh, got into trouble on two fronts. One is it was only lending to the directors and to the people who are in the directors 
uh, immediate social circles. Now you can imagine if you were a bank officer, how difficult it would be to collect the debt from an officer, much more easy to collect the debt you know, for, on a loan from some outside borrower. But when it's an officer, you have to think twice and scratch your head a few times to say, can I really put the screws on one of the, one of the bank's directors? And as a result, uh, the bank itself got into trouble. And so did a lot of the directors. Morris ended up borrowing far too much money uh, to make investments in the West. He eventually gets thrown in jail for that. And, and a number of others uh, who, who later became important uh, had, had problems with it. Uh, the first real bank of the United States was that set up, set up by Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton. It was called the first, called Bank of the U.S. at that time, later called the First Bank of the United States. And here, too, there were some problems initially, because this was going to be a quasi-official uh, bank in the sense of being both part of the government and not part of the government. It was private, but it was somewhat, it wasn't really a central bank. Had aspirations of being that, but wasn't quite. That. And the shares were four hundred dollars a share. Now, four hundred dollars a share was more money than the average American made, probably in close to a lifetime. So it was, it was not fundable by then. Here again, this was part of a Hamiltonian design, which was he felt that the government of the United States could not succeed unless the wealthy really bought in. And this was an important idea and uh, one we have uh, overlooked because we, we've gone beyond that stage. But at that time, with a, with a country that's just in formation, if you don't get the wealthy to take their money out from under their mattresses, if you don't get them to mortgage things and buy in and buy shares and promise them 10, 12, 18 percent a year, the federal government isn't going to have a steady income. And now it has a possibility of an income by tariffs and possibly even some, some uh, personal taxes. But we've got to be able to build up a government, federal government, to sit on top of these states, prevent them from doing any more stupid things, and to get a country together. It wasn't at all clear after the uh, Constitution that the United States could hang together. In fact, the British were banking on it. They were hoping that this kind of an amalgamation would not hold. How did Thomas Jefferson respond to Hamilton's bank plan? Well, he didn't like the Bank of the United States, but uh, he later had to agree that it had, it had done a fine job. What he didn't like was the way that Hamilton set up to pay the debt, which was not to pay the debt. He would pay the interest on the debt, but he didn't want to pay the debt as a whole. And this was a huge amount of money. $90 million, many more times the, 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 local, the total GDP or GNP at that time. The total budget of the United States in those years was around $10 million, $10-$12 million. But the national debt was an 80 to $90 million range, and they were just getting started. But Hamilton said, no, I want to keep this debt intact so that it will do what I want to do, get the wealthy involved, and get all the states to buy in because they have a part of it, they have a part of the debt, was holding them together. What Jefferson and Madison said, and Gallatin too, was that this shortchanges two generations of people. One is those who fought in the war, who had the bonds to begin with and had to sell them 
because they couldn't afford to keep them. And it shortchanges the people who are going to get the benefits of having been veterans and their children in the second generation. And so they wanted to pay the debt off right away. And by the way, when Jefferson got into power in 1800-1801, he and Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin and Madison, they, they sort of worked as a triumvirate, did just that. In 10 years, they cut the federal deficit in half. And by the way, they also did things like cutting down the size of government. They even closed the IRS. And they mothballed the Navy a bit, and they got the Army uh, to, to stand down. And they had enough money to buy Louisiana Purchase and still take care of that within 10 years. And these are the guys who were called liberals. Now, if you had people today who said, okay, I want to cut the size of the government, I want to cut the federal deficit in half and, and you know, get rid of the IRS, you would, you would put them in the rock rib conservative thing. And these were liberals who did that. So we need to rethink about how we think about people in this revolutionary early republic era, about what they were doing, what they weren't doing. Now, Jefferson was just as much a financial wizard as anybody else with that time. Gallatin certainly was. He'd been to school in Europe. He'd been to university in Europe. He had read all of these uh, people that, that Hamilton had read and many more. And he understood their concepts and what they were doing, what their ideas were. And they had a radically idea, radically different idea of how to take care of the country. And we also have to understand that in the year 1800, things changed tremendously for Americans that the power was no longer solely on the East Coast, on the Atlantic Coast cities, that the country was moving west with it, more population. Jefferson was essentially elected by people who were not from New York and Philadelphia and Charleston. He was elected mainly by some inner city people, mostly poor ones, and by tremendous majorities of people in, in the West. And the West was then what we now consider the Midwest. How long did the Bank of the United States last? Uh, the Bank of the United States lasted till exactly 20 years, until 1811. And its death was, was, a, was a bad idea. Um, the residual bad death that Jefferson and Madison and others of their Democrat Republican Party had helped to kill it, but that was not it. Gallatin, who had originally argued against it. When he became Secretary of the Treasury and, and the wars approaching, the War of 1812, which anybody could see coming for at least five to seven years before that, he understood that it was very important for the United States of America to have a central bank. And because it would be able to loan the government money to pay the troops you know, before the next tax receipt came in. And so he argued for it. And even a congressional committee, which was given the job of trying to come up with a recommendation to kill it, said, you know, Gallatin is correct. We're going to need this in our next war. So what happened? It gets to a vote in the Senate as to whether up or down to get a renewed Bank of the United States or to kill it. And the vice president of the United States, serving under President Madison, kills it. And he's a member of their party too. And exactly as Gallatin and everybody else had predicted, 
a year later, when we get into the War of 1812, we get into tremendous financial problems because Gallatin puts out a loan, big loan, that the big banks and everything will have to resell to smaller customers. And most of the banks in the country, which are then still under federalist control, are not interested in taking it. So they managed to get through 1812, but in March of 1813, Gallatin writes to President Madison, we only have money to get us through the end of the month, the whole government. After that, not only can't we pay the troop, we're gonna to have to close down the buildings. Now, if that had happened, they would have had to sue Great Britain for peace and probably lost a great deal of territory in the war. But Madison says, well, do what you can. And Gallatin managed to get three of the country's wealthiest people, all of them immigrants, by the way, as he was, together to take the bulk of this next loan, some $10 million worth, and to then what we now call syndicated to smaller customers. The money came in, American troops and ships were able to stay in the field until such time as the war became somewhat stabilized. The war essentially ended in 1813, 1814, although the, the Treaty of Peace uh, did not come until 1815. So this was an absolutely essential thing uh, to have done. And it was a final instance in my book anyway, of, of the wealthy coming to the assistance of the United States, when in fact, the country itself couldn't come to its own assistance. And uh, that is one of the hidden themes that I have here, which is what are the obligations of the wealthy towards the country that essentially is making them wealthy and continues to. And I think this is a problem that we are still grappling with today. You know, we, we don't know what to do with our wealthy and they don't know exactly what to do to help the country. Some have interesting philanthropic ideas, but there is not a more central way of doing things. We are not getting, we don't see at the moment, the kind of thing that happened during the Roosevelt year when you had dollar a year men who were essentially multimillionaires agreed to come and serve an important position because they were the great manager. They were the ones who knew how to get things done. We don't have our top dozen multi-billionaires in the United States in the government managing things. Uh, it might be different if we had. We don't know that. But at the moment, we don't seem to have um, the ways of incentivizing them to come in and give what they can. And I'm not talking about necessarily only in terms of giving money, but also in terms of, of giving of the kind of managerial expertise that's central to them making their massive fortunes. Well, let's go back to the 1790s and talk about the, the newspapers. You write about Philip Furneaux and some of the, the newspapers that he ran. Uh, what, what were the political connections to those newspapers? Well, uh, politics was much more overt at that time, uh, and newspaper writing was much less objective. And uh, the, the two of these things came together. And so let's call them the Hamiltonian had one organ and the Jeffersonian, Jefferson, Madison primarily, decided they would have another one. And so you had competing newspapers, um, both coming out of Philadelphia, and then later ones also coming out of New York. And this was in a certain sense tremendously educatory for the public because you could read one paper saying one thing, another paper saying another, and you'd get the dialogue. You 
as a consumer sitting here in your heart side could understand from both of these things. You might agree with one one day and one the other day, but at least you would have these positions out in the public. We didn't have cable TV at that time. Uh, we didn't have emails. You know, we, we had very bad communication viewed from the 21st century. But what we did have was very articulate people putting down their thoughts. And it's wonderful to read these things because the clarity of their thought is, is right out there. You see something written by Hamilton, even under a pseudonym, but we know it's Hamilton. And then an answering thing from Madison, and they go back and forth. Um, this is a tremendous educatory process, but they're also educating themselves because the Constitution is a very slim document. The Declaration of Independence is a slim document. All of these things had, the, the, the implications of all of it had to be elucidated. And in these competing newspaper articles, that's what's happening. They're, they're bringing out the, the ramification of their position, what they mean, and, and for the public to share. Now, during this time, the French Revolution breaks out. How did Americans break down in their support for or opposition to the French Revolution? Uh, the short answer is it didn't. What happened was the idea of the American Revolution was incredibly important. The people taking power, even if those people happened to be very wealthy when they got into office. Uh, this was extremely helpful to the spirit of the revolution. But the American Revolution, as I said, started at the bottom and had a buy-in from the top. And it also benefited on something that we don't usually talk about in this context, which was the Committees of Correspondence, which in the 1760s and early 1770s were spreading the ideas throughout the country, allowing people to think about them and talk about them, come to particular positions. One of the things we no longer remember about the America at that time was that it was the most literate country in the world, in the sense of having more people able to read and more ways for people to be told about them. And I think this is a crucial factor in the difference between the American and the French Revolution, because the French Revolution did not come about in the same way, did not have that same currency among the people in the, who were not on the front lines, uh, and therefore wasn't supported in the same way. And also the French Revolution had a much more difficult structure to overthrow, much more compelling it included the Catholic Church. Uh, it included a complete fiefdom system. It concluded an actual nobility. There were no nobles in America at that time. And uh, so the, the French Revolution is much more, much deeper and more complete, in a sense, than the American Revolution. The American Revolution changed things to be sure, but it basically only severed a political tie that was on the verges of severing by itself anyway. It's an important thing. We did it in an important way, but it was not as total a revolution as the one in France. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Tom Schachtman. He is the author of the book, The Founding Fortunes, How the Wealthy Paid For and Profited from the American Revolution. Tom, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Phil. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. 
visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.